Hello, everybody, and welcome to Cana Rinse, Volume 10, Issue 452, Monster Hunter World and Monster Hunter World Iceborne. Uh, I'm your host, Richard Davison. I'll be the fleet commander for this issue, and joining me today is the Elder Melder, Joshua Garrity. Hello there. The excitable A-lister, Leah Hedu. I hit it with the hammer. And the returning guest, uh, the computer game show co-host and star of Bell's Kitchen, the aptly named Meowskular chef himself, Sean Bell. <laughs> You're right. Good. So, Monster Hunter World is the fifth game in the mainline Monster Hunter series and the 16th game in total in the Monster Hunter franchise. And this is Kane Rince's first look into what is Capcom's biggest selling game. We are three years-ish away from the release and it has its anniversary later on in the month of January. In Monster Hunter, players take the role of a hunter-gatherer and slay ferocious monsters in a living, breathing ecosystem where you can use the landscape and diverse inhabitants to get the upper hand, hunt alone or in co-op with up to three other players and use materials collected from fallen foes to craft new gear and take on even bigger, badder monsters. So credits. In the producer role here, we have Ryozo Sujimoto, who is uh, of Resident Evil Outbreak in 2004 and has spent the rest of his tenure with Capcom in the Monster Hunter series. Joining him is a Capcom stalwart Hironobu Takashida, and in a sort of sub-producer role is Shingo Izumi and Katsunori Inoue, who have their only credits in Monster Hunter World. Director, in this case, is Yuka Takuda, who has his only credits again in Monster Hunter 2004. The executive director here is Kaname Fujioka, Monster Hunter series, and interestingly, of Konami's Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker, who have a, a sort of spiritual sequel to, to some of the Monster Hunter games. In the lead design, we have Teruki Endo, who is a designer for Resident Evil 5, but has the first design lead in Monster Hunter World, and Yugo Tagawa of the Breath of Fire series, the Mega Man X Command Mission. Technical director is Yuiki Oi. The lead environmental artist is Kanichi Miyahara. Composers in this case are returning Akihiko Narita and Jenlan Kang. Interestingly, despite spending many uh, hours in this case of trying to look for accredited scriptwriter, there are no scriptwriters for Monster Hunter World. And I'm sure we'll, we'll come to that as we go through the, the salient points of the, the, the game there. You it's can't tell. It generated itself, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the internet just thought about it for a while and spit out <laughs> the Monster Hunter World script. <laughs> the game itself released on the 26th of January 2018 with a roughly seven month delay and it was released on Windows on August the 9th 2018. The game is built upon the MT Framework 3 engine and it's an upgraded version of the second engine that brought games like Devil May Cry 4, Resident Evil HD Remaster, Resident Evil 6, Marvel vs Capcom and Dead Rising. In terms of reviews, it has an open critic 89% among 176 critic reviews and 96% recommended. In the West, it has a 9.5 rating in IGN, a 9.0 rating in Polygon, and an impressive 39 out of 40 in Japan on Famitsu. It's a, an accredited award winner. It has the winner of the Game of the Year and the, quote, Excellence Award in the Japan Game Awards 2018. Uh, similarly, the Excellence Prize in Famitsu in 2019. And in the West, the Game Awards 2018 revealed it to be the winner of the best RPG game. Interestingly, in terms of sales, 15 million units were sold as of January 2020, making it the greatest selling game in Capcom history. 61 million sales of the Monster Hunter series overall over the last 16 years. On to our histories. Leah, if you can just give me a run through of, of your relationship with Monster Hunter in general, and then uh, perhaps a little bit more of an indication about your relationship with Monster Hunter World. 
Yeah, um, so I my, my relationship with the Monster Hunter series up until World was pretty much n- uh, nothing. Um, I wasn't even, I didn't think I was going to be interested in World uh, leading up to the release because I really didn't have any uh, experience with the Monster Hunter series. I had tried it very briefly a couple of times. I, I worked at GameStop um, for too long um but when i was there i i did kind of try out a couple of the uh psp games just because you know we could borrow games and take them home and i thought hey this looks great you know i i love rpgs this looks fantastic and then i got into them and i was like i don't understand any of this there is so (laughs) much going on here and you know with the psp in the states and i imagine probably largely the same uh in, in europe it's not as easy to kind of get a multiplayer session going uh, on on a PSP as it as it tends to be um, where the series is the biggest in in Japan or has historically I guess been the biggest in Japan. Um, so I was trying to face all this by myself, and I didn't really I I just didn't get it. I, that's that's kind of uh, the the long and the short of it. I didn't have the um, the patience really to it didn't grab me in a way that made me want to like go and research how to play the game uh which is probably what i actually needed to do at that point if i was going to get into it so i played a couple of um just short spurts on various games and i tried i think i tried the demo of the uh the the 3ds version um which i don't even remember the title I think of that was four um, ultimate right i yeah that sounds right um I, what I remember is I had a friend who was playing it, and he said, hey, you can dress your Palico cat as Link. And I said, okay, let me try that. Um, but still didn't stick. So, uh, yeah, World, I didn't really think I was going to get into. Um, so it wasn't even really on my radar. Uh, but when it came out, um, I am obviously very difficult to convince to try a game if other people are enjoying it. Um a lie that was supposed to be funny um i'm a very (laughs) notoriously soft touch um when it comes to games that people are enjoying and especially people whose opinions that i trust on things and this had a lot of people whose opinions that i trust saying this is a great game you're probably gonna love it and you can play it quite easily with other people so um i picked up the game pretty shortly after release and um (laughs) had possibly one of the the better um introductory kind of honeymoon periods with this game um because pretty close after its release um uh my birthday is in february and uh, one of my best friends her birthday also in february and um we had that year uh rented a cabin uh, up in like middle of nowhere upstate new york um so we went up there and brought a ps4 and an xbox one and um i was playing on the ps4 she was playing on the xbox one and basically, we would just kind of trade off systems. So here we are in cabin, middle of nowhere, nice little fire in the fireplace, making s'mores and um, just playing Monster Hunter for a very long time. Um, so I played through most of the base game by myself, um, some of it with with other people uh, on occasion. And then earlier, well, I was going to say earlier this year, it is not 2020 anymore. Uh, thank God. Um, but earlier in 2020, um, played through uh, Iceborne with uh, you lovely people. My, minus Sean. I don't think I've played with you. But um, but yeah, just uh, 
got through uh, most of Iceborne um, and still have, I think, more, well, I know, more that can be done. But um, right now I have some pretty sweet armor and a bunch of sick hammers, and I'm quite happy with that. <laughs> Sean, how about yourself? Oh, God, right. Um, <clears throat> so I bought the first game on the PS2 back in the day. Um, this was when I was... Like I was, I think I was on a gap year between college and university, and I was just washing dishes for a living, but had absolutely no overheads, and would just buy anything that looked odd for the PlayStation Two. And this was one of the games I picked up, um, and like, sort of had sort of like some appreciation for for what it was, um, but just found it too difficult to get my head around. Um, like you know, just things about it were just completely blowing my mind, like the fact that. You could, rather than using the face buttons for all your attacks, they were mapped to like the right analog stick, which I think was optional, but it seemed cool. So I was like <laughs> um, doing that and just thinking, wow, this is just so odd compared to like, I mean, I think the only other game that's done that is Too Human, which as we know is a, a classic. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, so this, this sense that like, this is something like, even though it is just guys hitting monsters with swords and stuff. There was just something sort of intriguingly odd, but eventually I bounced off it and then um, tried to play, what was it, the the PSP one. So I think it was Freedom 2 and then Freedom Unite I tried to get into. Um, spent a good few evenings trying to use uh, network tunneling software to try and play with people online. Um, because this, this, like, this was a, a strange thing for the series for a long time, wasn't it? That it sort of refused to like enable online play it just wasn't really the 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 culture that was that was growing around the game at the time um so yeah and so then again sort of bounced off it and then monster hunter try came out on the wii and then that was like the one where it really started to click um i remember playing i I think i must have put about 20 hours into it and then i started listening to I i think it was just called the monster hunter podcast because this was back in the day when you didn't need it. Like it was the only one, so they didn't have to call it anything other than that. And I, and it was like literally the first episode. Um, one of the hosts was like, "Right, stop mixing your armor sets. Here's how to make a max potion." Did and you know, and just like went through all these things. I was like, "Oh my god!" Like like this now all sort of really you know starting to make sense. Um, and then yeah, and then I sort of became like a a real cheerleader for the series at that point. And I was you know because. So many people would be, you know, say like, "Oh, well, I tried it and I didn't really get into it." And it's like, no, me too. The trick is, you've just got to play like four of them, and then <laughs> eventually it'll click, and and you'll, you know, you'll really enjoy it. Um, so then, when Three Ultimate came out on the Wii U and the 3DS, um, I reviewed that for the Telegraph, and then when Monster Hunter Four Ultimate came out, I reviewed that for Gamespot, um, and loved both of those and. Yeah, and then oh, then there was Generations, wasn't there, on the 3DS, which was fine. I didn't get into it as much as I did for Ultimate. Um, and then, yeah, and then Monster Hunter World came out, and it was really strange because it was this, you know, this series that I'd been, like, screaming at people to try for all these years. Uh, suddenly, millions of people were into it, and it was fine, and I didn't have to shout at anyone anymore. Um, and, yeah, I mean, obviously, we'll... we'll get into the the changes and stuff but as a as a long time fan there there was a lot of things to get used to and and things i did miss um but it's yeah just this really strange arc that like suddenly after 16 iterations <laughs> suddenly this is a series that everyone cares about now um 
and then yeah and then with Iceborne um, I mean as you know Rich and, and Josh when he played the other night uh, I didn't get into initially um, and then yeah, yeah literally picked it up like this week and blasted through a bunch of it with you guys um, so yeah I think that's it good stuff yeah thanks for that Sean Josh yourself yeah so um, I can't claim to have been into Monster Hunter before it was cool uh, in the same way that um, Sean and Rich can. Um, but I can claim that I got into Monster Hunter before it was mainstream because <laughs> Monster Hunter 4 Ultimate was kind of my first um, uh, foray into into Monster Hunter. I remember it because um, I feel like Monster Hunter 4 is a really, really important um, game in the series trajectory into the kind of big sales hit that it it's become now um, because it was the first time, at least from an outsider looking in, uh, in perspective, that it felt like a Monster Hunter game was very seriously being taken as like a potential game of the year contender. And this is like 2015 as well. So it was the year that, you know, Bloodborne and The Witcher 3 was coming out. And yet here was Monster Hunter 4 Ultimate getting nines and, and 10 out of 10, you know, review scores all over the shop. And and I, I was just too curious um, not to pick it up based on the word of mouth. And also listening to people like Sean go on about it on, on various podcasts and say, no, seriously, you need to, you need to pick this up. Um, and I, and I do think um, like have it, cause I play dark souls for the first time in 2013 and there's something like because before that i was very much like souls games aren't my thing i'll never get into them blah blah obviously that i've done a complete 180 on that um and i felt like okay if i can overcome that surely surely i can get into this series and i think that confidence of going like i've i've conquered an impenetrable game before I can do it again really helped with with Monster Hunter 4. And also um I made, you know, I I really properly got into the multiplayer and all of that stuff and I feel like it being on 3DS especially and me being like quite, you know, quite young and um you know just out of uni so um I still had a lot of college friends who wanted to play it and stuff like that. Um call it uni friends who still wanted to play it. Um, and, uh, like, I just, I felt like I got the most out of that title. Um, and yeah, um, despite my love of Monster Hunter 4, I, I didn't really get into Generations. Um, my understanding is that Generations is like a kind of greatest hits collection. It's kind of like, oh, okay, here's, here's all the classic monsters before we kind of, uh, you know, change things up with world. Let's have a celebration of what the series was up until this point. Um, I, I think it like it's still like the the same old great monster hunter, but there was something about the creativity and the. It's like the difference between a really well curate you know curated album versus a greatest hits collection, right? Like four felt like a really good like. Uh, selection of monsters really well paced in terms of levels of intensity and all of that and generation generations was at 11 right from the word go and it, and it's just it was just a bit too intense um whereas um like the like world like everything they were talking saying about it in terms of the the preview coverage and and the trailers is like 
wow, okay, this feels like a meaningful evolution over what 4 was doing. It feels like they're addressing some of the the kind of um, just like small little hurdles that don't need to be there, which I'm sure we'll get we'll get into. And yeah, I, I ended up buying this day one and my hour count is is dwar- it's it's very small compared to some people on this recording. But the fact that I put a hundred and eighty odd hours into a game like this is is very telling for me because I'm very much like I I'm always moving on to the next game. Once I've completed something, I'm 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 off to the next thing. So the fact that I dedicated that amount of time just tells you like how like how much it had a grip on me. Um, and yeah, I completed Iceborne. Um, so I completed Monster Hunter World back in 2018, but I completed Iceborne a couple of weeks ago. Um, and have been playing with um, Rich, Lear, and, and Sean in the last uh, couple of weeks. So, yeah. Um, and that's it. Lovely. Good stuff. So, uh, myself. Oh, this is really tricky. Um, I was in university in 2004, and so I missed the launch of the original Monster Hunter, albeit it was a game that I found to be quite intriguing and something that I was uh, mindful of trying to pick up at the time. I didn't actually get around to it, but in roughly around about 2007, when I picked up a PSP for the first time and found myself with a, a, like a super long commute, um, which kind of persisted through the rest of my adult life, I picked up Monster Hunter Freedom, and then I picked up Monster Hunter Freedom Unite, and then my love of Monster Hunter has persisted through the series. It is very difficult for me to estimate how much time I've spent across Freedom, Freedom Unite, uh, Freedom 2, Try, Monster Hunter 4, Monster Hunter World, and Iceborne combined, but I'm going to say somewhere in the region of around about three to 4,000 hours worth of gameplay, and under normal circumstances, that would probably be something that I could do quite proudly, but in the same way that Josh's 100 or so hours on Monster Hunter um, World is is dwarfed by mine, my playtime is nowhere near the, the difference between that and somebody who plays this game intensively, or for that matter, any kind of Japanese player who plays this game quite casually. What I found really appealing about Monster Hunter is it's almost a sort of like social um like zeitgeist something that's really kind of intensely related with social life in japan and the way that they have like embedded into their culture uh monster Hunter cafes and you see that mirrored with some of the success of, of games like uh, god eater and metal gear solid peace walker and i always found that it was quite unfortunate that i couldn't actually echo that or mirror that in my own experience unless i plan to travel thousands of miles to to somewhere else and, and do that Monster Hunter 4, as Josh mentioned, really kind of opened up a, a much more simpler interface with, with online gaming. And for that matter, I think Monster Hunter Try on the Wii did did a, a little bit more like that. And, and I have to say, Monster Hunter Try is a game where I spent most of my time and certainly cut my teeth. I also echo Sean's frustration with some of the earlier games. I remember the PSP games were really difficult because the, the camera control was awful. You yeah. had the well, control any, stick. Really. <laughs> yeah, you had the control <laughs> stick to move the character and then mm. the D-pad of all things to move the, the camera. So um, there's this sort of, I don't know if it was a pre-meme um, thing about uh, people who played Monster Hunter affecting a, a left-hand claw to oh, yeah, try yeah. and play the game effectively. <laughs> Um, Monster Hunter World, it was a game that I picked up day one. I'm always very trepidatious about Monster Hunter when it comes out because it's been this enduring game that I've spent a lot of time with over the last 
13 years at this point. But when Jay mentioned uh, that he was going to pick it up, somebody who I play a lot online with, I was like, yeah, that's that's all the um, the instruction that I need to go out and get it. And yeah, I've got about 500 hours on the clock on Monster Hunter World, and that, that is combined between World and uh, Iceborne. Just on Iceborne, I also picked that up day one and I played through it for the most part by myself and I think that's probably in response to the fact that there was a good year and a half between when the base game content came out and Iceborne came out and that was just enough time for people to really lose sight of how to play the game and and how to kind of carry forward some of that muscle memory that they developed. But um, as as a big fan, um, it was a no-brainer for me. So I'm going to move us on to issue what might be the most perfunctory spoiler warning of, of any cane and rinse here because it is uh, a pretty svelte plot. But um, we'll we'll have a quick chat about the scenario and the characters and, and the, the plot itself. So um, the plot of Monster Hunter sees the, the, the player take the role of a silent protagonist uh, known as an A-list hunter at the beginning. That's uh, never quite qualified what it is. And they are tasked with travelling from, quote, the old world to, quote, the new world for answers to a phenomenon named the Elder's Crossing. For unknown reasons, Elder Dragons have been making the crossing between worlds from every 100 years to every decade. Uh, the player takes the, the, the role of the A-list hunter for the fifth fleet who make the journey between the old world and the new worlds and they're attacked by an elder dragon named Zora Magdaros. On the way there, they land in the new world and they complete their campsite named Astera. Something happens in the middle where players battle increasingly more complicated uh, dragons until they reach an elder dragon, at which point they understand that they are the elder dragons, that is, are making a necessary journey back to the new world to release their, quote, bio essence, at which point it can be done to create new life. It is uh, a a very interesting um, story. And I think really the problem that I've got with it is 90% 90% of this story is given to you within the first hour of a game that is ostensibly 500 hours long and somewhere around about the 50 hour mark you're given the second part of it and I think it's kind of widely criticised as a game that really doesn't necessarily have the most elegant story and perhaps by design not a very elegant way of administering that story to the players I mean, I'd, yeah the story's barely there and it's, you know, whatever I like I, I could I could do with even less of it. Honestly, I, I don't really like yeah. the it, Does it, it really makes, need it all the story. That's that's where I would go with it. I mean I guess <laughs> I guess I don't know. I, I guess if you like that like I love stories and games, but I, this is a situation in which I'm not sure that yeah, I You know, that somewhere much. in there, there's a, a very beautiful tale about James Lovelock's Gaia theory and the carbon cycle. <laughs> it's just not quite really there and i think yeah like if the function of the story was to provide some justification or context for why we've just arrived on this new island and are just murdering everything in sight it doesn't even do that like it's it's so flimsy um so yeah i i i skipped like you know i tried to take in some of the story initially and then just ended up skipping as much of it as i can but then you can't really skip most of it can you like well, still, there it is. What yeah. what little there is to skip, you yeah. you can't skip that. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah, I think um, I think this this really like you know le- leads to the idea that there is, as far as I'm concerned, no credited writer for the story, and it, it's clearly not a priority <laughs> for that. But it may be interesting to see that they've actually gone somewhere to put some really threadbare narrative in there to justify some of the ethical quandaries that players may face when yeah. they go on. And it's so strange because the the previous games were pretty funny. 
Um, like, <laughs> again, didn't really make sense in terms of, you know, justifying what you're doing. But there was a there was a real charm to the I mean, maybe, you know, I don't, I don't know what it's like in the original Japanese. Maybe it was it was just because I think all the localizations were 8-4 play, weren't they? Um, maybe it was just them having fun with it. I don't know. Um, but yeah, there, there was a real charm to it, which was mostly lacking in in worlds. So it's kind of like great. So we've got cutscenes, and they're also not even funny or anything. Like some of that sense of humor is, is definitely still there in world. Like you know, the the when you're running away from a monster, that sort of funny, <laughs> sort of terrified run you do, stuff like that. You know, I yeah, I'm normally like quite happy to have stories and games but this is the monster Hunter is one of those where i'm literally just like give me a list of monsters like the, to me the 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 joy in in progression through a monster hunter game is like going like right here, here's all the monsters right if this is the one you want to kill that's like you know 10 down the list it's like right well that's a that's a fire monster so you're going to need like some armor that protects you from fire and a weapon that deals, you know, water damage or, or whatever. So then you have, then you go back up list and go, okay, well, where can I get those? And what do I need to get those? And it's that picking your way through it. Like, to me, that's the narrative of Monster Hunter yeah. game. Yeah, I agree. You know? I agree. It's clearly a problem that they recognize, though. And I mean, like, we have members of the Kingdom Rinse team who, who have a, a bit of an issue with the whole um, concept of, of hunting monsters without uh, any kind of cause or consequence. And I think that's something oh, yeah. that the... Yeah. The producer and the director have picked up on. There's an interview um, with Patrick Klepek from Vice, where Ryozo Sujimoto, the producer, and Konami Fujioka, the director, uh, explained that in Monster Hunter World, players naturally hunt down different monsters throughout the game to gather resources, obtain crafting materials, or complete objective. It's a loop that, that requires a certain level of violence, made more apparent by increasingly realistic reactions from injured creatures as the battle progresses. We try to design the game so the setting is telling you that this is a necessity of life as a hunter. It's not just a massacre of things minding their own business in the world. We try and structure it so that it's a necessity to stay alive to get resources or to get food in this harsh environment. I've heard stories of parents playing the game with their children, only to have the children speak up in defense of the wounded monster when it starts running from battle. In a way, that made me happy to hear, because it meant that I achieved my goal of verisimilitude of depiction of creatures. But I agree, there's a bizarre balance that needs to be had. Uh, there, so it doesn't just come across as cruel. See, I think I think it does just come across as cruel, though. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that, that's what I was going to say. To play devil's advocate a little bit, uh, it. I mean, there are some almost kind of distressing bits where if you have mm-hmm. wounded a monster enough, it'll start drooling. It starts to look kind of bedraggled, and eventually, it'll run away and go to sleep. And you know. My instinct and, and most of yours yes, <laughs> is to is to stand at its head with my hammer, charge it up, and then hit it as hard as I can while it's sleeping. <laughs> and that's messed up. Like if, yeah. if that, I mean, if you if you hear it you, that way, when you first find out about like you can capture them instead of killing them, and you think, oh, okay, that's nice, and then it's like, yeah, because you get more resources for doing that. And it's <laughs> yeah, like you can oh, capture good. them so that you then put them in an arena where it can't run away and kill it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or just like a team of you know scientists can just more efficiently whip out every single part they can from it. It's horrible. Yeah, seems like it could have been fairly easily remedied as well, right? Like if if the missions were like like we need food or we need clothing or or we're being attacked or just yeah. anything really. Yeah, like yeah. there are there are excuses it's self-defense. they could and like it wouldn't justify you know the like killing a Rathian twenty times over to get a sword or whatever. But it would be something like 
like you know like looking at something like destiny you know you end up replaying the same strikes like dozens and dozens of times over it only has to make sense in the story once and then it's just like well i'm I'm just redoing this like it doesn't really make any sense anymore but whatever in the absence of a plot what we're left with is this concept of we need to kill defenseless in many cases (laughs) and sort of inferior monsters to build up the power to defeat the big bad monster so the wake of destruction that you leave in your 100 200 hours to be able to get there is is just completely like reprehensible i I think sorry buddy this is for the greater good and then smack it I guess I'm I'm comfortable being a little bit of a hypocrite with this because like I know um with a certainty that if I was hunting Siberian tigers or <laughs> or Alaskan bears or something like that in 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 this game I would be I would be immensely uncomfortable yeah, but because yes, because they'd it's be a chewing pookie- on your head, <laughs> like. <laughs> <laughs> but well, that. But like it, that, the fact that they're all fictional is just enough of a line for me, and and I appreciate that. And I, you know, um, James Carter, I, he's going to try out Rise, but uh, in the past, he's he's said that uh, he he can't play them because of the you know this moral reason that we're discussing and i don't blame anyone um mm. but for me like it's enough for me to know that i wouldn't hunt the real life equivalent of it like it's kind of like how um i can i can watch the worst fictional violence that a movie or tv show can put in front of me but if there's a video clip online of actual, like just a fist fight, right? It makes me yeah. extremely uncomfortable. Mm, mm, and I agreed. feel like this is a similar situation because it's a dragon, because it's a pookie pookie. I can just go, I'm fine. <laughs> I can, I can engage with the fantasy. I can just enjoy the fantasy of it. But like, yeah, if they were real animals, then that, that would be. That's when I would become uncomfortable, and I'm 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 okay with living in that kind of weird moral gray area, just so I can enjoy this this fantastic series of boss battles. The sort of mental gymnastics I go through with this to sort of <laughs> justify it is that like once you've you know if there, you end up in a situation, this does happen because of like weird drop rates and stuff. If you end up having to like farm the same monster twenty or thirty times uh-huh. over. You sort of you lose any sense of it being a thing you are killing, and it's more just like it's like sparring with it, and you almost feel like you develop like even though obviously in the like in terms of the game you you're killing it over and over and over again, right? But in your head, it just kind of becomes one monster that you're just repeatedly having this same fight against. Indeed, and it, and yeah. it feels like a relationship you have with like this one creature, even though you've killed thirty of them. Which is nonsense, right? It doesn't make any sense. But it's, <laughs> but you sort yeah, of that, when that, you that sort of sense of character that it, yeah, that it has, and, yeah, and, and that feeling of just utterly dominating it because you're so <laughs> familiar with with the the attacks and and the way it's moving and yeah. knowing where it's going to go next and and that like verisimilitude that that um, producer Ryozo Sujimoto is talking about is mm. something that I guess that he probably should be proud of in that regards. Mm. Let's take that and and just sort of naturally segue on onto the the design aspect of it. And this is something that I've really struggled with myself because the design of the game and the the mechanics of the game feel, at least to me, to be totally inseparable. 
But for the purposes of this conversation, let's try and create a distinction. And um, it's the first instance of, of any Monster Hunter game where I genuinely feel like it's not just simply the hunter and the monsters that are really the the kind of critical actors in this game here. The environment itself plays much more of a role in the actual um, the battle and the the effects that you can have within the battle um, are, are evident because of that. But we'll we'll touch on some of that as we go into the the gameplay. But for now, let's just try and sort of like pass through the the environmental design. So players uh, spend a, a good deal of the time in, in the settlement known as Astora. It's like a, a steampunk settlement um, with a forge and a meowskiller chef to produce nice, healthy, vegetarian steaks for you to, to eat before you go into battle. Uh, the environments in which you fight monsters are the ancient forest, which is like a almost like a tropical jungle mixed with a, a sort of bizarre uh, temperate forest. The wild spire wastes, which is like a, uh, a muddy quagmire mixed with the desert. The coral highlands, which is a I, I'm not sure, uh, just this impossible geography with um, weird uh, underwater coral uh, features. The Rotten Vale, which is my particular favourite area, it is, um, well, it's kind of like Ron Seal, it does what it says in the tin, it's just this um, place where all the dragons may go to to rest their head and, and, and die with, with elegance and, and sort of dignity. And the Elder's Recess, which is like a, a, a big, um, I guess, uh, sort of geographically active volcano mixed with uh, huge sort of rock formations and then of course you've got the special arenas including some of the, the series stalwarts like uh, dropping rocks on uh, monsters and using the quote dragonator to impale a monster to fight them with um, I wonder if anybody's got any thoughts on on the efficacy of, of these arenas and, and how much they kind of brought you into the storyline um, I think in terms of giving this world character and and making it feel like a living breathing space they're really really successful i will say and and i sean mentioned this in um our session this week um they are a bit visually busy in a way that the previous environments haven't been and like it can vary, so I I find the elders' recess pretty easy to navigate, and and uh, the ancient forest is pretty easy to navigate. But when you get to places like the coral highlands, it's just a confusing mess of up down and and, and like blocks of color, um, and with like really like scraggly coral and all of that stuff it's really hard to kind of make out where you're going and i do wonder if like this increase in detail this increase in fidelity has decreased the game's overall readability in terms of navigation now it hard counters that with some like a new mechanic that we'll talk about later but just in terms like if you didn't have that system um I think this environment would be a, a nightmare to, to to traverse through, which makes you wonder what came first, doesn't it? Like, yeah. did they invent the scout flies and then go right, cool, we can make everything all twisty and, and vertical and weird, or did they create sort of quite bad and confusing maps and then go, hang on a minute, what if we could just have a system to lead players quite. by the nose through it? Um, I, I, to be clear, like I love the visual design of a lot of it. Um, but I, yeah, I, I do find like even now, um, like there are times where I'm just following the scout flies and I, I don't, and I don't know where I am. I'm just go going through, you know, running through like on these sort of weird paths made out of tree roots or going through little nooks and, and stuff. And it just, I, and I lose all sense of, of place in those moments. 
I'm not sure if they managed to kind of create that like natural blend between familiar Monster Hunter, which if you played the the previous games were, were very kind of like not very tall, like very one dimensional. Mostly the the most you're going to get is probably like a ledge that you can jump off, and and this world where it's it's open and completely free and only linked by well I, I guess you could say they're like corridors between the places but they've they've tried to keep that very kind of like flat areas that you would expect to see on on other monsters and because of it it just creates this really kind of alien unfamiliar un, quite unpleasant um topography that that just makes it really difficult to to get through and that's evidenced by the the map design where it is practically impossible to tell you where where you are on one of the maps uh, in the many layers that are there yeah, and I mean, we should mention that like it was a complete revelation that each map is one entire area that you can run around freely, as opposed to previous games where <laughs> each area is is split up into loads of little sections with loading screens between them. Quite brief ones, but still, um, it, th- that was really jarring. And I don't even like obviously, you know, back in the sort of PS2, PSP days. It was a technical limitation. Once we were on to sort of the Wii U, 3DS, um, etc., it sort of felt like, is this just a design decision now that they're just sticking with because that's how they've always done it? I wasn't really convinced it was still a, a technical thing at that point. But yeah, it was that was getting really stale by, you know, uh, like 4 Ultimate. So the fact that they finally sorted that out with this one was was huge. It, like Because it was such a, as well as it just being irritating, sort of, you know this little loading screen transition between areas it was like a a tactical thing you had to be aware of like if you're fighting a monster and you're near the boundary of one like you know zone then you've got to be really careful because you might just get knocked by an attack and then it'll knock you into a loading screen and into like in a different area and it was terrible um so yeah good that they fixed that at least but yeah you do wonder if they sort of struggled to create an environment that size that then had to be consistent in you know your ability to run from one end to the other without any loading screens because like those loading screens would sort of cover like transitions so the in the previous games those you know like one map wouldn't necessarily you, you know you'd exit one area by, via you know sort of one boundary and then where you reappeared could be at the end of like a winding path or whatever do you know what i mean it, it would sort of cut bits out whereas yeah. this obviously had to be consistent throughout which yeah, I don't know. Maybe that that was why they struggled with it. I don't know. So, the environmental effects of the the game were were improved, obviously in response to the processing power of being on the the PS4 and the Xbox One and, and the PC. Um, and I guess given it's the first time on a main console, they were able to really flex that as well. And you see that improve. Uh, sorry, with improved UI and navigation. So, it's it's effects from the player. For example, like numbers that would appear when you do damage, mm. uh, giving you a much more clear visual rep- representation of, of how effective you are at uh, culling the monster and in damaging the monster. As well as the damage type and whether or not you're doing what this game considers to be uh, almost like a critical hit mm. called affinity there's a lot of busy splashes and and sparks and flames that go on especially when you're in four player co-op and you've got a, a sp- particularly small monster it can be a bit a, a bit of a busy game as well and i wondered at myself often if there's a way to make that sort of experience a little bit more elegant see i quite like that stuff I don't, it's it's less i mean yeah now that you know since since the world has damage numbers that certainly gives you a much more concrete idea of um you know how much damage you're doing whereas previously those flashy effects were all you had to go on as to whether or not you were you know hitting a, a weak point or whatever 
Um, but I, I do still, I don't know. I think because the process of taking down a monster takes so long, I think having those little victories where knowing you got like a really good hit in or whatever are quite important. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think as much as I'm critical of the busyness in navigating um, to find the monster, in the actual fight itself, everything is so big and so outsized in the fights that I find it hard to miss information. So um, I just appreciated um, just having that, like as Sean says, like that sense of that impact, that feeling of like I'm actually making progress here. I think that's missing from the kind of, like, especially Monster Hunter I say especially, but my experience of Monster Hunter 4 Ultimate was that in the kind of beginning to middle parts of, you know, those monster fights, you really don't know if you're doing much to it. It's only towards the kind of last third of the fight where the, the monster starts drawling and limping that you get a sense of, okay, we're, we're near the end here. Having all of that information on screen in this means that you're always aware that you're being as effective and efficient as humanly possible. So we'll come to discuss the animation when we have a, a chat about the monsters themselves, and uh, I guess that's probably because they're so intricately linked with one another. But just to just to have a quick chat about the audio itself, I've got a, an extract here from um, the executive director and art director Konami Fujioka, who mentioned that they are involved in the visual and game design but good sound makes the monster feel real. If we have something that feels realistic, then the player gets a different vibe. They feel differently about it. And I think that's really one of this game's like incredible strengths. The ability to discern monsters based around their roars and the way that they move around, the sounds that they make, the uh, sort of effect of any elemental damage that they may do. And um, it's just something that is, is laudable, definitely, for sure. Oh, I think, I think the sound design in, in this game is in- incredible. Um, uh, especially uh, the Elder Dragons kind of um, stand out to me just because obviously they have to be these, um, you know, geography shaping like that, like they're they're forces of nature on a on a, a large scale. They can they can sink islands or whatever. I d- the lore around the Elder Dragons is really interesting. Anyway, like I just I love stuff like the kind of the steely flaps of Kashala's wings. Like the the real sense of like, okay, I'm fighting a creature made of steel. Like that that mechanical sound that it makes as it's flying through the air. The really guttural roar that uh, Nergagante gives off, like it feels like the roar is like echoing throughout its entire body. Like all of that stuff is really, really well done. Um, I, I mean, the roars and, and all of that stuff is like the, the standout, but just the little stuff, like, um, like just like the script, like the scratching that Odagaran does, like as it's recovering from being flipped on its back. All of that stuff is just really well observed and and really uh, just a really high standard. The kind of little whines that some of them make when they're limping away and they're wounded. Yeah. Yeah. I do find myself thinking like, I I joke, I joke, but I mean that, that is very, it's, it's, (laughs) I mean, it, it adds to making you feel bad about having to do this to them. You know, it, it really does. Like, and it helps because it's not always easy to tell when they're limping. Like once you'd learn to spot Mm -hmm. it, it is, but initially like, yeah, having like that different sound effect for them sort of wincing or whatever. I mean, yeah, you feel terrible, but also you're like, yes, 
Nearly, <laughs> nearly done, but <laughs> yeah. Or yeah, on the opposite I... side, when when they're angry as yeah. well. Yeah, 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 yeah. That that sort of change. I, I think most of the time, when they're getting hit, they're angry. <laughs> <laughs> One of the 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 kind of sound design aspects that I, that I really like about this, and I I don't think I've experienced it in any other game other than the Last Guardian, is is how they use sort of sound uh, effects to, to sort of give it a sense of how big the monster is and in particular it's that idea of when the monster is doing something near you it's the absence of sound so the change in air pressure because mm. this mammoth thing is moving so much that they're creating a disturbance in, in air pressure and and it just becomes this really like almost like alien silence that gives you that sense of oh wow okay I am in the presence of something that's absolutely huge yeah so let's push the this on and, and we'll we'll get into it now have a chat about the gameplay and and the gameplay really is kind of everything that monster Hunter is about and we'll start by uh going to the forum and uh reading through a submission by two smoking controllers being my first monster Hunter game i only had a vague idea of what to expect from the game what i didn't expect was to find the first few hours and hunts getting tossed around by what i thought was a big monster to then be on a hunt for that monster and something much larger coming across and toss that around like a ragdoll. Then a few hours later, for it to happen again to the larger monster that you've been working on how to handle. The spectacle of the monsters and going toe-to-toe is really something to behold and remains one of my strongest memories of my experiences with the game. And I've chosen this piece of correspondence because it really articulates the, the core gameplay loop of fighting what you believe to be something that's incredibly dangerous, overcoming it, mastering it, dominating it, and then having the exact same experience over and over and over again. Yeah, like it's, you, you do get better as a player, obviously. But it, it's, yeah, it's like this constant sort of, like, yes, your character's improving as are you, but like you're, but you're also very involved in that improvement process in terms of the character because it's not just leveling up or whatever. It's you having to sit down and figure out what gear you need or what might work, what might exploit like a, a monster's weaknesses. So it's not just like, you can't just power level it and then be like, oh, well, I'm level 99 now, I can kill anything. It's you, you, like you have to be an active sort of participant in that in that building up of your character and you have to think your way through it. Well, that's the thing, right? Is that you, you don't, I mean, you, you get levels, but they don't translate to like upgraded stats. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's basically like a your level only means this is how how difficult a, a, a piece of this gameplay we have determined that you can now handle. Um, yeah, indeed. So, so it's uh, you know the the stat increases such as they are really only come from your your gear from your armor and your weapons. Mm. So if you're not, I mean, you could go out with the exact same uh, gear and and kill a bunch of monsters, but if you're not actually upgrading what you use to go out on those hunts then you're not gonna have a very easy time of it because eventually you're just gonna hit a wall where you can't really damage things because your weapon's not good enough i i think what's really telling um about this game is that we were um you know end of last week we were playing with sean and we were doing some of the earlier iceborne um fights and myself and Rich had like higher level um, equipment. We had like I had Elder Dragon armor on. I had like an Elder Dragon um, charge blade. But we were carting to the earlier monsters <laughs> because we just let our guard down. Like mm. we weren't we weren't taking them seriously. We weren't 
employing the tactics, employing that muscle memory that we learned. So even if you have high level gear, like you're doing a lot of damage, you, you can tank a lot of hits. If you're not engaging with the game tactically, you're st you're still going to be uh, thrown around like a ragdoll. You have to take every monster seriously. Yeah, like you can, yeah, you can get gear and stuff that will, you know, massage the odds somewhat. But you never feel like you're cheating yourself out of a proper fight at the end of it, do you? Yeah. Never like, oh well, I've made this trivial now. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, if, you so know, if you go back to like the very first, you know, like the Great Jagras or whatever, then yeah, it's pretty, pretty yeah, embarrassing. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> But like that's how far back you have to go to be like, oh yeah, this is actually pretty easy now. I guess this is probably quite an academic question, but one that's useful in the the context. Like Monster Hunter, certainly in the conversations that I've had with my friends who don't play Monster Hunter but know of it, they they always talk about it as a game that is perceived to be difficult. And I just wondered if if that's something that you can reciprocate, or if it's if it's something that you completely disagree with. I know for myself, like it's very difficult to return back to what it would be like to be a, a new starter and go okay like is this a challenging gameplay loop um because of thousands and thousands of hours of, of doing that but um i just wonder if that that, that sort of title and that uh, badge is something that's um you know justified i think i can speak to this given that it took me this long to actually get into a monster <laughs> hunter game period um i i think that there's or at least there can be a, quite a high barrier to entry um, because there is a lot that you need to learn. Um, you know, if you leave without having the necessary equipment to sharpen your weapon, or you leave without eating uh, a meal at the at the canteen first, so that your your stats are increased. If you leave without, uh, you know, considering what your armor is and what kind of equipment you have, and in the later game, like what kind of gems you have equipped and what kind of uh additional things like do you have a um do you have a um uh cape of some kind or a mantle uh, and which kind and you know if if you don't consider all of those things then you will have a a slightly more difficult time or possibly a a, a hugely more difficult time depending on what it is that you uh that you do uh and i think that that can be a little intimidating um, be because it, I found that getting into it was a little bit difficult, uh, especially in the earlier games. Now, I, I think that World does a little bit better job of kind of onboarding you with that kind of stuff. But if you miss kind of the, the tutorializing of the different aspects, then, then yeah, I think it can be a pretty difficult game. Uh, now, I think that if you take the time to actually learn it, then then it's not as difficult because, you know, it, it is basically, I, I don't want to say the same thing repeatedly. It, it's the same aspects used, used in kind of slightly different ways uh, for different monsters. But um, I, I, long story short, I think that um, it can be difficult to learn, but once you have learned it, it's not a, a yeah. terribly difficult game. I think, like, for me, the difference between this and something like Sekiro is that Sekiro is a game where there is a right way to play it and you either perfectly execute the boss fight or you don't and you lose. 
Um, and I love that's not me um, denigrating uh, denigrating um, Sekiro. I love that game, but what makes Monster Hunter's challenge, I think, um, initially kind of impenetrable, but as you understand it, more more flexible and much more inviting is that it rewards you for first of all experimenting with different weapon styles, and we'll, we'll get into this later, but the like some of the different weapon styles, you might as well be playing a completely different game. But then secondly, it it really rewards you for fighting smarter rather than harder. Mm. Like using the environment, like noticing that there's um a rock above the monster's head that if you hit with your with your slingshot, it will collapse and do massive damage. Um taking advantage of little um uh, you know, raises in the environment to set up a mount, uh, like all of that stuff, um, and you know, just simple things like, um, like okay, like th- this monster is going to do a lot of poison damage. Let's make sure somebody has like a cleansing, some cleansing uh, um, items. Somebody has some antidotes, so we're all covered. So the most dangerous thing about this monster, we've got a hard counter to. So. Like, I think, yes, it is challenging, but it's not challenging in a sense of, like, your reaction time always needs to be on point, or um, it's just purely about, like, memorization. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of it is just uh, being smart about improvising in the moment and taking advantage of opportunities that present themselves and yep. learning to spot those opportunities. I think they've made very small, discrete decisions as well, just to sort of ablate some of that difficulty in a way. So, um, for example, attack commitment is now no longer a thing in Monster Hunter World. There was a point previously where if you wanted to, I don't know, just perform a basic function like chug a potion, you would stop and you would be exposed for (laughs) three seconds, four seconds, Mm -hmm. just while you drank a potion and then flexed, (laughs) just given that range of opportunity. There's also a subtle change in attack priority, so, for example, the monster's attack will always have priority over yours, and that makes you kind of be a little bit more um, cognizant of, of when to take an attack, and, and that's reciprocated in some of the animations. You can do things like walk while consuming and pick things up much quicker, mm. and that wasn't necessarily available in the, the previous tiles. I think but like just grabbing resources as well, because that used to be, even if it was just you know grabbing a, a herb, or whatever, that would be like a stop and character does a little crouch and then a little animation where they grab something and then you'd have to do it again and again. Whereas this is like you can just sprint past a herb and just grab it as you go. Like that was that was a huge um like and, made made it feel so much better. Yeah. In terms of UI as well, you can yep. map things to uh hotkeys and yeah, hotbars yeah. and, and do that really quickly as well. So it's just much more of a, a kind of elegant, streamlined version. And that probably does contribute to the fact that it's much easier to get through these games than it is uh some of the earlier titles. So um, just in terms of, of where to go next, this is a, something that I really want to labor. Uh, there are many, many, many monsters in Monster Hunter World, and it would be an inordinate amount of time for us to go through every single one of them. But what I'd like to do is just to sort of highlight some of the, the key monsters um, that have, have kind of either got a, an especially pleasing aesthetic design or if there's a sort of continuity between the way that they're they're designed in the way that they play, something that brings you great pleasure. So, Josh, I sense that you've got quite a lot of opinions on this, so I'm going to open it up to you. Yeah, I'll, I'll start off with one that um, does get introduced kind of towards the latter half of the game, but is really memorable to me, 
which is um, basil geese, um, just because it's such an unusual design. So there are a lot of like standard kind of dragon or T-Rex style monsters in, in Monster Hunter World that breathe fire and do all the standard dragon-y things. Um, basil geese fires explosive pineapples at you, um, as it, <laughs> like a, like a, like a World War II bomber just glides over and just drops pineapples, <laughs> from, um, from the sky. Um, and it, it kind of functioned, cause I know they did this, um, previously in Monster Hunter Tri where, Devil Joe would just show up in lower tier fights just to just to scare the scare the bejesus out of players who are hunting something a little bit more passive. Um and Basil Geese kind of functions as a similar in a similar way where it's introduced way before you can actually fight it officially um, as just a monster that gate crashes um, these lower tier fights. And there, I just, I have so many memories of like getting towards the end of a fight and basil geese would show up as we're carving and just trying to, trying to get the calves in while dodging <laughs> these pineapples um, all over the place. Um, yeah. I, and, you know, we we kind of um, skipped over the animation uh, previously, and I and I feel like um, the animation for these monsters is so key to their personality and what makes them so memorable and so special. Basil Geese is particularly, I think, is particularly great in this regard, just because you can feel the weight of having these like overgrown tumors underneath its neck it feels like it's constantly like it needs all the muscles that are on the top of its head in order to even exist as a creature and the weight of having to drag all these like weird pineapple tumors around it, it it's it's an amazing piece of like because you were talking, Rich, about how the animation and gameplay are so linked like I think it's an amazing example of like selling both okay what would a creature who has this ability uh, what would it behave like how would the weight of this impact it while also communicating in a gameplay sense of like okay this is like these are dangerous like like the fact that it would um sacrifice so much in terms of nobility uh, uh, uh mobility um in order to have this ability suggests that this ability is incredibly effective at killing um yeah i just yeah i it's i think it's a phenomenal design absolutely shout out to yeah that phenomenon of bigger monsters turning up especially like really early in the game like i think most of the monster hunter games do it where you know You've done a couple of hunts against, you know, what it calls like the bird wyverns, like the, you know, small or relatively small, like sort of lizard monsters or a, a big friendly bear who likes honey or whatever. And then, and then a Rathian will show up and you're just like, oh my God, like how, yeah, I, yeah. I'm never going to fight that. That's terrifying. And then, <laughs> and then, you know, four or five hunts later, there it is. Um, but and then yeah. four or five hundred hours later, Rathian yeah. is like a blessing when one turns up and you can just sort of scrub it away. Yeah. 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 Leo, do you have any any monsters that you have a particular affinity towards? Uh I, I, I would say that just the elder dragons in general, I, I, I like those kind of setups. I, I 
it it almost seems like they're not the most difficult fights. I, they they certainly can be like the first couple of times that you come up to them, but they the more you go into them, they they seem like almost set pieces. Um, and uh, uh, Zor no, not Zora Magdros. That's the big one. The um, uh, somebody help me out with the name of the glowy uh elder dragon that you fight towards the end that that I got that hammer from. Um, oh shoot! Hang ah, on. the Zenojiva. <laughs> yes, Zenojiva. Yeah, it's 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 not a fight that I love, but I really like the design of that monster and kind of how it moves and just the the fact that you know it's not just it, like it almost looks sort of ethereal because it's glowy and you know it, it just it looks cool like i i don't have a, a huge uh deep explanation as to why i like it i just i think that that in particular and the elder dragons in general are just designed in a way that really makes them look important and you know kind of makes them stand out a little bit from the while still having a lot of the um a lot of the attributes that kind of make them similar to the other monsters in that like they look like real animals you know they they it, most real animals don't glow but some of them do um like jellyfish i guess <laughs> um but uh yeah i mean it's it's th that's kind of the design thing in general that i enjoy about the monsters in world specifically and and i guess about uh, monster hunter in general is like you know they you can see kind of where where the real life influences have come from yeah. in, in a lot of cases. Um, it's just, there's something that's a little, like you can see maybe these things evolving in a couple of thousand years, you know, like that, that's it, it, it could happen. But obviously there are things in there that, that make it uh, not the, uh, not the realistic um, uh, thing that it could be. But uh, yeah, that, that for the, for me, that is it. That's the, it's the elder dragons kind of having a, a, uh, almost a tier beyond the normal uh, Quite. Uh, animals and monsters that you uh, that you fight in the the base game. I, I, I hate to move on from this because I could spend hours talking about it. But if you have any interest in in the monsters in particular, then I urge you to check out Sound of Play two hundred and fifty, where Josh and I go into a very long discussion about each monster, <laughs> the phenotype, and and the music that accompanies them. <laughs> I want to move on now to have a, a chat about the, the next element of the gameplay features, which is the weapons itself. Um, so there's a, a kind of running joke between me and, and whomever it is that I play Monster Hunter with that is you can sort of almost personality profile somebody based around <laughs> the, the choice of weapons that they use. And, you know, it, it, it's comical as it sounds. What I actually genuinely do believe is it's a really strong indictment that there is no one weapon that is superior than the other. It is an incredibly balanced game. Mm. And you get the sense that you know capcom have a, a caliber with their fighting games and and monster Hunter has got a very similar kind of almost feel to it now like there is no new weapons in monster Hunter world but there's improvements upon the weapons so we'll, we'll go through them you've got long sword great sword which is a, a, a just a great big buster sword dual blades a sword and shield a switch axe a charge blade hammer hunting horn lance gun lance an insect glaive a bow a light bow gun and a heavy bow gun um in much the same way we had a conversation about uh the monsters i, I just want to sort of come to every one of the panelists and, and have a discussion about where your preferences are and and just why so we'll start with sean we'll do a serpentine um it's sort of it, i don't know it varies uh mainly longsword um especially if i'm playing on my own um i just 
feel like i mean I, I, yeah i just i love the um the spirit combo mechanic where you know so by sort of landing normal attacks you you build up the spirit meter you then spend that to do this sort of ludicrous combo that ends in this sort of huge sort of roundhouse slash which if you connect with like raises your sword spirit level and you do a bit more damage and that goes from like white to yellow to red but then that sort of fades over time as well so you're sort of constantly managing that to try and get the most damage out of it um that and the fade slash which is just one of the moves it has where you sort of like you do like a quite a a short dodge but you you dodge and slash at the same time and god when you get it right and you like perfectly dodge a monster's attack and hit them at the same time with it um it's just beautiful um if i'm playing in co-op i tend to use the bow instead like basically i think I prefer, or I find the bow more interesting, but I, whenever I play with it in single player, I just never feel like I'm getting enough damage out of it. Um, mm. which might just be the way I'm playing it, but I prefer it as a support weapon and, you know, using that to sort of apply statuses and stuff um, that other people can, you know, sort of capitalize on. Um, but yeah, but as you say, that like, you know, you can try them all and they're all fascinating like you you can play through most of the game with one or two weapon types and then just pick up something else and be like this is a different game this is this is absurd like <laughs> there's just so Entirely, much to know yeah. about each weapon and like world does a, a better job at teaching you how they work like it, you know back in the sort of try and, and three ultimate days you could spend 50 hours with a weapon and then stumble across a youtube tutorial and be like oh my god it can do this it can do the, you know, like, uh, <laughs> just finding out about hidden uh, attacks and moves and stuff you had no idea about. Um, but yeah, we'll probably sort of come to it as we, we maneuver through everybody in the the weapons. Um, I'm certain I, I've got some thoughts on the exact same concepts that you brought forward. But for now, I'm going to throw it over to Leah. Leah, can you just tell me all about this incredibly sophisticated weapon that you've chosen to use? I use the hammer all day, every day. Um, <laughs> It's so so the re I actually started with the switch axe. Um, I did not start with the hammer, um, but the switch axe was more complicated than I wanted to deal with. And the hammer is very simple and very straightforward. You hit it. That's all there is. You hit it with the hammer. Um, and, and it's the weapon itself is not very mobile because it does take a long time. It is slow. Um but it allows me to kind of be a little bit more mobile because I, I I feel like if I only get one hit in with the hammer, that's still pretty good. Um, so, you know, I can do one hit and then roll away and, you know, try. But but if in, in a situation where a monster is knocked down and I can get off a full combo, it is very effective and incredibly satisfying. Like if you hit something dead square on with a hammer, you know that you have hit it. And it uh I, I find that very satisfying. So yeah, I don't some, have any uh, incredible I weapon designs as well. Yeah, I have some I have some extremely cool hammers. Um but uh yeah I I, I don't have a, a a particularly sophisticated uh reason for why I like using the <laughs> hammer. I just like using the hammer because it there is something very, uh, very primally satisfying about it for me. There's, there's also something very, very comical about a character dressed in a wedding dress <laughs> charging at an enemy with a giant club. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. The 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 armor that that I wear, uh, and and Rich, I know you have this armor too. Um, is from the um. 
the enemy that we were talking about earlier. Vale Valazak. Yeah, 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 the Valazak. Uh, and it, it does kind of turn out looking like a wedding dress, but it's really good armor. So um, I might look a little silly, and that's okay, um, because I think I'm <laughs> extremely cool with my gigantic hammer and wedding dress. Well, from the ridiculous to the sublime, Josh, do you want to tell us about um, Switch Axe? <laughs> no, charge blade, not so. Oh, excuse me. Yep, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. No, I'm the other complicated resource <laughs> managing transforming weapon. Um, yeah, um, I, I, I always knew I wanted some kind of like uh, offensive defensive combo. Um, and in Monster Hunter Four, I tried out a few of them. So I tried out Lance, and I decided no. Um, sorry, that's not for me. No offense, Rich. Um, <laughs> I I tried out Sword and Shield, and like it's really accessible and easy, but it felt a bit boring. Um, I tried out Gunlance. No, uh, <laughs> definitely not. Um, and then something about Charge Blade just really clicked with me. Um, <laughs> no, I never tried the hammer because I'm a I'm a sophisticated gentleman. Um, well, also, 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 there is no defense in the hammer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that too. You want um, that? You're in the wrong place. <laughs> but um, yeah, I I so to explain what the charge blade is for 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 anyone who doesn't know who's listening, um, basically it starts out as a a sword and shield, um, but. There's this mechanic where um, you do damage as you do damage to the monster. There's specifically a draw attack that you can do that builds it up more. But any attack that you do that does damage to the monster, it fills up these vials, and these vials can then be deposited into your shield. Um, and at certain points during the fight where you feel like you have an opportunity, you can shove your sword into the shield and change it into a giant axe and um, release um, the uh, the energy that's in those vials into a form of damage um, into the monster. And depending on what kind of charge blade you have, whether it be... Um, a flame aspected one or a dragon aspected one or something like that um it will do the vials damage will do damage um that's specifically to do with that that uh, element or that damage type um but then you can do all sorts of other creative things with it as well so some uh, if you want you can use the vials to supercharge your shield so that the shield can tank more damage and once you supercharge the shield, you can actually also supercharge your sword. So your sword does more damage. Um, and then there's also a mode where you can turn your axe into this spinning, spinning blade. So it's about, um, the charge blade is about resource management, but also applying those resources in different ways, depending on the needs of that particular fight, whether you want to be more defensive or whether you want to be more offensive. Um, and I, I ever since four, I've abs absolutely fallen in, lo in love with it. Um, they've added a few things to it, um, so um, you're a bit more mobile in world. So there, when you're attacking the monster, you can do this kind of dash and attack at the same time to get out of dodge. Um, but yeah, uh, for me, it's just 
Um, I love being able to keep track of um, just resource and information. I like um, I like games like that. It's the reason why I really love survival horror games. It's the reason why I really love the Half-Life series. So being able to inject that kind of resource management into a melee weapon was really, really appealing to me. Um, and I found it really, really hard to kind of move on to any other weapon. Um, I went into the Rise demo going, I'm going to try something else. But then Charge Blade brought me back. Um, uh, yeah, I, 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 I totally understand. this weapon. It, it, it's yeah. such a, a kind of like, if you spend any length of time in Monster Hunter, it becomes a fundamental part of your identity within yeah. that game. Yeah, and, and I have the exact same relationships. So I use the lance. It's not an especially appealing weapon in the beginning. It's essentially a, a big old tower shield with a big, long, pointy thing. You do very little damage. You've primarily got two attacks, a poke, and a different type of poke. But what, what, what the lance is really good at is... Not only can you defend, but it's it's like, for me, it's like the closest approximation to playing something like Street Fighter. It becomes a game of footsie, where you're just stuck right in the belly of the monster and just trying to find ways to sort of gently negotiate around certain attacks or block them. And I, I don't play Street Fighter myself, but I'm led to believe that the, there's a, a similarity between the two. And so I can really get that sense of... Um, that, that like approximation um, from that issue. And the more you play a monster, the more you realize that there's less differences in the weapons, that they're, they're primarily the same, whether you're blocking or you're using iframes in the case of the longsword, the greatsword or the jewel blades, and, and many more for that matter. It, it is, it, it's like a, it's like a, uh, um, uh, like a, a beat em up or a, a, a um, Street Fighter game where you, you, you have to kind of know the complexity and, and really read between the the sort of like lines and understand the the matrix that exists in between. Yeah, there's a real sort of sense, isn't there, of like some of it's like some of it you're sort of actively reading what the monster is doing, but then there, there is also an element of just sort of intuition that you can't quite put your finger on, but you do just build up over time. And yep. yeah, like personally i never got on with the lance but i know it's yeah it's one of those that's regarded as like a good one like if you really want to get into that that game of learning like good positioning and and stuff like because you can constantly just be like jabbing and sort of adjusting your your position after each attack if you want um whereas like you know with the long sword i can once i'm into a combo i can't really move i can do a fade slash and you know Sort of hop in one of three ways, but then the the amount of movement afforded there is quite limited, and it takes longer than just a you know the hop with the the lance. Um, so yeah, so it's a real as you say, it's not so much damage per hit, but it's that ability to just stay right with the monster. Whereas I'm more likely to have to just roll away and then sort of reconsider how I'm going to then sort of approach the monster again. So uh, we'll move on. We'll have a quick chat and I'll canter through some of the gameplay features that have returned from previous Monster Hunters. Uh, so the core loop, as we've mentioned, is the idea of hunting monsters, gathering materials and using the remnants and remains of those monsters to create better equipment. Making their return again is, is Palicos, who are small sort of anthropomorphized cats that aid you in battle. They have their own equipment and they provide support in in the form of either doing sort of relatively small damage or, or delivering healing items as you're going through. 
Uh, the idea is that you can also use trapping and capturing, which is a necessary part of some of the, the quests to actually not kill the monster, but to bring it back, uh, and as we've described previously, to, to go through. What I'm more interested in, however, is, is the new gameplay features, because I think they contribute towards making a kind of much more agreeable mm. and slow and and pleasant gameplay experience. So we'll go through some of the the kind of gameplay features, I suppose the online features first. Um, there is scout flies. So previously in Monster Hunter, if you wanted to track a monster, you would have to bring a paintball with you and you would have to hit the monster with the paintball and that would allow you to visualize where the monster is in the map. But at the moment in Monster Hunter World, what you have is scout flies and they're sort of like an intelligent creature that allows you some visual representation on the screen in real time. And if you follow the scout flies, it brings you to your destination. For me, I think this is absolutely fundamentally the biggest improvement in, in any of the, the Monster Hunters since it was uh, first brought forward. Thoughts? Oh, you see, I quite like the paintballing nonsense. I, 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 <laughs> what? Like, there are, I, I don't know. I, I quite enjoyed the the sort of... You know, having to just arrive in an area and be like, right, what are the herbivores doing? Because the herbivores will move away from a monster, right? So if you enter an area and like, right, some herbivores have just come from like area three, I should head that way. Um, and I, yeah, I don't know. It, like, it, you are right. Like, <laughs> the scout flies are better. I just, because, you know, the way that that sort of tracking stuff had been implemented previously was kind of shaky and, it, like, but I I would have liked to see them do that stuff better. Obviously, the counterpoint is like as much as I liked the paintballing stuff, I still spent about ten hours in you know Freedom Two, not knowing about it and being and just being like, what the hell? How am I supposed to know where the monster's gone? This is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. like, <laughs> so it's one. Or of the them. amount of times that your paintball runs out yes, just as the monster's exactly. limping back to to the nest. Yeah. <laughs> We've all been there. Well, I but, haven't. But, but um, <laughs> well, that, that's what I was going to say. The, the paintball thing, I, I, I know about it. I, I haven't really experienced it myself. Um, but it, I, I kind of think it sounds miserable. To be perfectly honest, <laughs> I, I like, I like, I prefer the idea because I mean the scout flies aren't immediately just going to show you exactly where the uh, the um, monster is. You kind of have to find some something of theirs. Like you know, you have to find mucus or you have to find footprints or you have to find some kind of of evidence of the monster to kind of have your i the way i kind of looked at it was like if you have uh you know a, a dog that's tracking it or something you know it, it has to kind of get the scent and it'll get a better idea of where the thing is uh as you go along so i i mean it's not it's not just an automatic here it is, go get it. Um, you do have to do a little bit of work, but um, I, I, I prefer that, especially given the time limit um, with most hunts is, uh, is usually fine. But if I were having to search one of these entire maps to find just the tracks uh, to kind of get myself to the monster, I think that I would be uh, a lot more frustrated with just that bit of it. It seems to me that like, immediacy and and quality of life changes to make it much more sort of natural and intuitive was something that they probably designed into well embedded into the design principle because you know like there's things like there's infinite whetstones now it's not yeah. a consumable resource which was a real boon and well a real problem in some of the previous games mm -hmm. like having to carry along 
both paintballs and whetstones made it so for example <laughs> if you're on a really elongated fight and you don't have the sharpness that you require it, th- those fights are practically impossible so that yeah that quality of life change is a really intelligent one and it's and it must it, have been hard to make those decisions because obviously so much of the enjoyment of monster Hunter is in you know the satisfaction of having prepared well and you know pre world like yeah sort of making sure you had um yeah you know wet stones and paintballs and you know whatever else like you know uh, axe you know pickaxes and stuff if you wanted to mine anything like that all felt wrapped up in that that sort of satisfying preparation but then as it turns out you take that stuff out and it's yeah it's better <laughs> like there's still yeah. plenty of satisfying preparation to do without having to be like oh yeah and i also need to carry these items that i always need to carry forever like there's no that, that, that's not like a fun decision you're making you just always have to have those things so yeah remove the decision like it's it's pointless absolutely then there's some some quality of life things that they've introduced equipment so you have things like mantles which are like capes that have different effects some let you glide some let you um, are providing vulnerability some give you aggro for example so you can game the monster things like boosters which are these kind of like uh, i guess they're like flares on the floor that you pop down and, and they have like status effects uh positive ones so like persistent healing or the removing of poison or uh giving you an affinity boost so the ability to hit with a critical hit a bit more but there's there's much more seismic um changes to the the kind of uh the the difficulty and and the gameplay that that i think that are, are worth noting so um josh do you want to just describe what a turf war is a turf war um is that great moment um in kaiju movies where mofra and Godzilla square up against each other for the first time, and all the human characters go, you know what? Stand down. Let them fight. <laughs> and everyone just everyone just watches as these two titanic creatures uh, smash into each other. It's one of those systems that um, I can't quite believe is... You know, they it wasn't in the series before, because like when you've got a you know a a, a series like this with all these monsters, the, my first thought is you know the the you know ten year old child that's inside of me is like I want to see these monsters fight, I want to <laughs> see these these creatures duke it out, um, and they're just like incredible pieces. Not only like they're they're really useful in terms of you know gameplay because. If if you trigger one, like they do a lot of damage to your to your target, um, but they're just amazing pieces of animation. Just like again, I, I I wax lyrical about how this game really sells a sense of weight and and gravity to to these creatures, and you really feel it here. Like especially when the elder dragons duke it out, like there's a feeling like oh like. Like this entire environment could collapse if if these two aren't careful. Um, yeah, I I think it's a lovely new addition. And if you have the wherewithal, of course, you you can kind of game that and and use it to your advantage. You can yeah, yeah. lure or push monsters into the same arena to to sort of provoke one another and and do that. And it's just yet another example of how you can sort of create the environment to to sort of designed it to your advantage the danger of course being that they they could just both turn on you which happens (laughs) sometimes (laughs) Um. 
but there again, you have you have ways to kind of separate them if something like that happens. You have uh, dung pods that you can fire at them to kind of drive them off. So, I mean, there's there's solutions even if things don't exactly go your way in that kind of uh, situation. So I just want to touch on on something that Sean brought up a little bit earlier and the idea that the the Monster Hunter World is the first in the series that is a, a persistently online game. And I want to refer to some correspondence from the forum. Basement Shacks writes, I can't help but feel that some of the success of World is due to the prevalence over the last console generation of shared world looter type games, such as Destiny and The Division, that were built on the foundations laid out by Monster Hunter and Fantasy Star Online. But with Monster Hunter World, Capcom showed that they're still the best at this, and with Iceborne they showed how an expansion of this type of game should be done, a gigantic new chunk of game that most other publishers, and indeed Capcom themselves in the past, would have put out as a new full price title. So I just want to sort of unpack that a little bit and, and have a look at the, the online game itself. It is the best example of online play in Monster Hunter, but it is not without its problems. So in this game, there there is still exceptionally long load times and still an unintuitive and convoluted way to game with your friends and, and colleagues, for that matter. In terms of progression through the main story, the game mandates that every single person in that story has independently seen the same cutscene that acts as the flag in order to get together. So it's not an elegant gaming session for example especially if you're approaching this for the first time because quite often you are disaggregated and disjointed and and made to be brought together and it sits almost at odds with the sort of ethos of the sos flair which is a a really neat um a mechanic that they brought in for co-op play where you can mid-game fire up an SOS flare and any monsters, uh, sorry, any hunters that are sitting in the gathering hub or or near a, a quest board can just elect to join your game at the same time. I don't think they've nailed the, the online gaming experience as a whole, but I think they've come some ways to actually improving upon what was ostensibly a very like woeful online experience in Monster Hunter 3 and in Monster Hunter 4 Ultimate. Yeah, because with the the previous ones, um, you know, we, we mentioned earlier there was this this total split between uh, single and, and multiplayer uh, campaigns, and like which does make some sense, and it it I think they're returning to it with with Rise as well, um, but it meant that you could find yourself in situations where you could put you know ten twenty hours into your campaign and then go right cool I want to play with my friends, and then you would you'd be back at the start effectively you'd be fighting all the early monsters again um and and that was weird so i i really like the fact yeah. that they they melded the two with this so the game obviously had some post-release support um up to a year and a half later there was some seasonal quests and seasonal aesthetics so uh the gathering hub had a bunch of missions that were related to specific times in the air so it's not based around a sort of like traditional eastern or western calendar it's things like a flower festival or a winter festival where everything's covered in snow but what was impressive was the the amount of crossovers and uh sort of additional content that was brought forward by the popularity of monster uh, crossing over with other games uh so there was a crossover with the witcher and uh, horizon zero dawn mega man devil may cry final fantasy 15 i believe and 14 for that matter as i learned last night street fighter assassin's creed origins and the monster Hunter movie title where you can have a mila jovovich skin uh i don't have that i think it's incredibly unlikely that i will get that <laughs> 
I'm going to open it up just to ask if anybody has any um, strong opinions or feelings towards some of this uh, unique content that's brought forward. It seems to have been something that's kind of universally praised. Yeah, I I want to speak about the Witcher content because of just how well they've implemented the kind of rhythm of a Witcher-free quest line into the context of a Monster Hunter Monster Hunter mission. Um, I I the writing is really really funny. Like throughout <laughs> the the Witcher-free quest, first of all, the context for uh, Geralt being there is like uh, because in The Witcher Three, Siri has this ability to transport to different universes, and they basically use that as narrative justification for Geralt being in the in Monster Hunter world. So we now it is now canon that Witcher Three <laughs> and Monster Hunter World exist in the same metaverse, which is fantastic. Um, and um yeah like when you start up the quest like it does the whole kind of detective thing that Geralt does when examining a corpse like it gives you like these like menu options of like examine the head examine the body and then uh, Doug Cockle will go through his usual gravelly delivery of like uh, his autopsy of what what's happened to this particular creature um, and then the fight itself, um, it feels much more like, you know, in The Witcher 3, it's much more about preparation uh, before the fight. Obviously, there's some of that in Monster Hunter, but here, like, you, they actually have you kind of gather stuff in the environment just before the fight uh, kicks off. Um, and there's much more narrative as well. They put some much more narrative weight into the mission. Like they know that Monster Hunter missions are usually sparse on that stuff. So they have to double down on it for a Witcher freestyle mission. Um, it's just really clever. Um, and it, it's way better than it has any right to be. We played a bit of the, uh, the Final Fantasy content Um it's been a while ago now, but trying to take down the behemoth, which we were not successful in doing, uh, because it turns out that quest is really hard. Um, but I think that's really all of the um, the extra kind of tie-in content that I have um, actually been through. It, it is worth touching on that, actually. Mm. Um, the, so, Josh, I think you might be able to do a much sort of better explanation given that you're a Final Fantasy XIV fanatic but do you want to just sort of describe <laughs> what they're trying to achieve here? Well yeah because I, I believe there were there were two crossover events right so there was um, the behemoth in Monster Hunter World and then they had the Raphalos in, in Final Fantasy XIV and they were trying to emulate the feeling of a Final Fantasy XIV boss fight in Monster Hunter World, and then in Final Fantasy XIV, they were trying to emulate the feeling of a Monster Hunter boss fight in an MMO. Um, I think largely um, people online agree that w the XIV's attempt at a Monster Hunter fight is more successful than Monster Hunter's attempt at a Final Fantasy XIV fight. Um, because like you have to, you effectively have to adopt MMO roles, right? Someone has to take on the role of a tank. Someone's DPS. Someone's a healer. That kind of thing. Um, but like the weapon, the weapon classes in Monster Hunter don't naturally kind of fit any any one of those categories quite so strictly. Um, whereas in Final Fantasy XIV. 
the kind of focus on kind of ducking out of the fight and managing resources, which is usually not a concern uh, in the standard Final Fantasy XIV raids, um, that just felt like a really interesting change of pace in that game. So I I think it's a cool idea. I just don't think it's particularly well executed. So we, we'll have a quick canter through um, Monster Hunter World Iceborne, and that's not to to denigrate the the game itself because it's quite a sizable expansion. It's probably going to take you a good fifty hours to get through. Uh, it's mostly because we've we've covered a lot off a lot of the the information in in the main show there. But Monster Hunter World Iceborne was released on the sixth of September, twenty nineteen, across all platforms that carry Monster Hunter World. It has six point six million sales, so that's about one third of the players who put time into Monster Hunter World. Bought and played a co- well, bought certainly a copy of Monster Hunter World Iceborne. That that's quite a good penetration rate, especially considering the the gap in time as well. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, one and a half years in a game as esoteric as Monster Hunter and <laughs> an inability to lose that that um, muscle memory is quite cruel, I find. Mm. And the the difficulty gap between going from end game Monster Hunter World into Iceborne is is outrageous. Yeah. Those yeah. monsters have got a crazy amount of hit points. <laughs> that that was I think that was what kind of held me off from it for so long because I did purchase it right around the time that it came out, but I didn't like I said I didn't play it until this I guess it was maybe late this summer uh, or late this past summer. And a, a large part of that was because I wasn't sure that I was really going to remember how to play and had heard that it was pretty difficult. So I didn't really want to get into it by myself. But uh, I was, I mean, that, yeah. that muscle memory I, does come back, but it's it's still <laughs> hard. <laughs> yeah, no, I was the same. I like I like pre-ordered it and, and had it on day of release and then just sort of didn't get a chance to play it for a couple of days. And all I was hearing from like, you know, series veterans was like, oh, my God, this is so difficult. And it just at the time, I was just like, ah, okay, I'll probably have a go at another time. I don't think I've got the, you know, the nerve for it at the moment. Um, and then just ended up uh, not bothering until I was invited onto, onto this show. I, like, I thought I'd, you know, Rich first messaged me. I was like, oh, I've barely touched Iceborne, but I thought I'd done some of it. And um, yeah, no, and then loaded it up. No, I, I literally hadn't, hadn't touched it. Um, I mean, I'm glad I have now, but yeah, like that difficulty jump is, is, like really extreme um and it's i mean it's it's an interesting decision isn't it because they could have like the amount of stuff that's in this they probably could have released it as a standalone thing but then it's it's probably right of them to think like yeah but this is going to cater to the people who really loved world and to to put out another game you know 18 months later that if if the difficulty the curve started at the bottom again like I think you know all the all those now dedicated new players would be like not happy with it, um, but it, but like what what's fascinating is that because this this adds you know master rank stuff doesn't it? And previously what what the series had done was like so you know when we referred to like Monster Hunter three Ultimate and four Ultimate that's because there was a, a three and four but we never even got them in the West they would come out in Japan and then you know six to twelve months later. They would release the the ultimate version, which then had the master or G rank stuff in it, um, and which is like amazing that they got away with that. I don't think many games you could you could do that, right? Like, oh, we've just re released it with you know more stuff added, but you'd have to like, could you even port your saves over? I can't remember. 
Um, I don't think you could. Yeah, so you'd basically be like paying full price for the, the same game again, but with more stuff right at the end. Um, so, yeah, it makes way more sense, like what they did with Iceborne, just to do it as like a substantial expansion for people who finished um, the main game. But, but yeah, that difficulty leap is, is big. And as you say, especially if you've had a break um, before going back to it. So Monsanto Iceborne brought with it some new gameplay features, including a new environment, the Hoarfrost Reach, which also brought with it back the returning uh, beloved uh, uh, mechanic of cold, which mandates that you you take a hot drink, otherwise you start to feel the effect of depleted energy. That's that's not a good thing. More um, impressively, however, they brought in a, a slinging mountain, um, which is the concept of being able to to kind of mount the monster without needing to jump on it. You can jump upon the monster and then attack a body part. And what it'll do is it'll it'll damage the body part or scar it. So whenever you attack that body part thereafter, you get improved damage. Um, it's 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 game changing. Basically, it allows you to really kind of like micromanage the monster's behavior and then target something a lot more effectively. There was, of course, better Palico equipment. So uh, Palicos could now revive you, giving you much more opportunity and flexibility to to kind of stay in the battle. And uh, yeah, it has a new um, home hub in, in an area called Celiana, which is um, just a, a very snowy area. It does a lot of the same things that the the previous home hub in Astera did. And um, we also have a, a new uh, Palico chef called the Gramias de Chef, who is, um, well, a grandmother chef, Palico, I guess. He just massages that, that roast. It, it, oh my god, she does. I don't know. It, puts an uh, ominous white liquid <laughs> at the end. Don't really know what's going on there, but she seems I friendly. I truly hope it's a bechamel sauce. Yeah. yeah. Probably, one would assume. I, f- I feel for her poor assistant who consistently gets oil splashed directly into <laughs> their eye. Uh, it's really painful to watch as someone who's had that experience personally. It's like, oh god. <laughs> How do you think the Meowskiller chef got that eye patch, man? Yeah. That's a good point. Oh, poor poor safety circle. standards. <laughs> <laughs> Read my fanfiction. Alongside at the new gameplay mechanics, of course, is returning monsters. So that it seems as though they what they, what they probably did is listen to some of the outcry from uh, monster uh, uh, veterans and they brought back the um, quadrupedal monsters with the, the Tigrex body type. So that's Brachydios, um Tigrex, and Naga Cougar, yes, yeah, there we go, including extra uh, Elder Dragons, um, and I've just crapped out, I forgot what the name of it is, <laughs> Jesus Rich, the icy one, uh, Val, uh, uh, Valkana, Valkana, yes. okay, <laughs> sorry Jay, edit point, um, including Valkana, the ice dragon, and uh, series favourites such as Brachydios and Fatalis. For me, though, what I want to really kind of touch upon just gently and, and briefly is, is this new concept called the, the Guiding Lands, which is something that you have to defeat the, the main campaign in order to get, but it, it changes up the game massively. It's the first instance in Monster Hunter where there are no loss conditions. Um, well, that's not necessarily true because there's uh, the expeditions, but what the Guiding Lands does is it consolidates and amalgamates all of the biomes from the base game of Monster Hunter into one independent environment and there's a sort of um, back-end 
engine in there when you defeat monsters in a certain biome it improves the the quality of the monster and the difficulty of the monster and the more time you spend in the the guiding lands defeating those monsters the the greater the likelihood of rare monsters coming out so if you're on there for an evening or you're just looking to grind monsters it's a really effective way to do that and you, you've mentioned this in the past, um, Rich. I think it's a great idea that's that's introduced way too late. Um, like I, I loved doing it. Um, I loved those sessions that um, we had, um, uh, where we were just kind of talking about our days and and uh, and moaning about stuff while just um you know whacking uh toby kadachi repeatedly in the face and then moving on to the the next harder monster it's a great mode and it's a great mode for for hanging out and for chilling out and it's like as you as you've said in the past rich it's just a shame that um it's introduced like after the highest the highest difficult you know the highest wall that the game can present to you in the form of uh, Ruin and uh, Gigante and uh, uh, Shara Ishvalda. Uh, so, yeah, it. I, I hope they return to this, but just maybe introduce it earlier. From the forum, Dusk vs. Tweak reads, I have never played a Monster Hunter game before, but all the hype around world when it was released, along with those impressive gigantic monsters, made this game my first jump into the franchise. I was still a bit hesitant because of the talk of how the game could be complicated or the difficulty could be a bit intense, but I found it to be an easy game to slide into, and once I had the concept and control schemes down well enough, it became a wild tour through ridiculously detailed environments and biospheres. I dug the MMO sense of scale and quests while allowing for solo gameplay. I like the balance of open world and direction the game has, giving me the option to just jump into random mission and grab some materials or dig in for a bunch of story quests. I know it's still plenty big, but it did really feel like an accessible for a new player like me. Uh, T-Bone254 says, This game has an impressive amount of content. I mean, the campaign is practically a tutorial. There's so many systems in this game. For me, the monster hunts were at their best when all these systems come together and everything goes wrong. Like setting up a pitfall trap only to have the wrong monster charge his way in from the trees and fall into the trap. Or setting up a perfectly timed true heavy slash only to have another hunter launch me into the air at the last second with an upward swing from their charge blade. It's hilarious and frustrating all at once, and I don't think I've felt that way about a game since the original Halo. Just a sandbox of games with an object for you to accomplish and a friend to help. World is easily one of my favorite games of this generation. Monster Hunter World was the first in the series for me. I had heard of the games before, and the idea behind them always appealed to me, but I never took the time to sit down and play them. I came really close once. I bought Monster Hunter Try for the Wii, but it's still sitting on the shelf in the wrapper. I'm really glad I decided to pick up Monster Hunter World because it has become a special game for me. My sister lives six hours away, so we do not get to spend a lot of time together. Our family time is composed mostly of gaming sessions online. While we have played numerous games online before, these usually include other friends and family. For reasons I can't imagine, no one else in our family and social circles enjoyed World, so it became the game for just the two of us. This isn't something we've had since we were kids when we'd have nightly sessions of Four Swords Adventures and Crystal Chronicles. Today, careers, education, and family take up a significant portion of our time, so the nightly gaming sessions are gone, but about once a week we can hop online, just the two of us, and slay some monsters for a few hours. Beautiful. Yeah. Sean, can you take Basement Shacks? Yep. Basement Shacks uh, says, uh, The story may be lacking, and the game may still have some obtuse elements that new players to the series find off-putting, but thanks to that addictive core gameplay loop coupled with an enormous roster of monsters to hunt, some truly stunning environments, and huge swathe of quality of life changes, it's no surprise that Monster Hunter World is the most successful game in the series. 
It's still surprising that it's the most uh, successful game Capcom have ever released, but that's just testament to how good it is. I've cherished my time with this game, hunting with friends, answering SOS calls, firing off my own SOS calls and having them answered by Japanese speedrunners, and I look forward to spending the next couple of months playing even more until Rise comes out. Je suis monté. <laughs> I think that's a dig at me. So the je suis monté <laughs> is, is French for, um, what, I am mounted? I have mounted, Or yeah. I am mounting? Yeah, and, and I, I, I think you sort of have a well, this slight is, gentle um, part Because I, th- I think that's what, cause that's what comes up, isn't it? Because it has those automatic chat messages. It and, is, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so yeah, if you're playing with anyone who's French, they obviously they have all the French ones set up. So yeah, you'll just. There was something going around about how French players used to abuse the mounting mechanic, and and I do feel slightly, <laughs> slightly hurt by that because it is something that I like to do as well, famously so. Uh, Josh, please. Um, Steve Aran says it's safe to say I love this game. I played it for three hundred eighty-six hours on release, only to return this Christmas for Iceborne and add another forty and counting. And this is despite the fact that in many ways Monster Hunter World is a fiddly, obtuse mess. This is most apparent in the multiplayer matchmaking. you think that they would have made it a little more streamlined to just join a hunt with your friends. Systems can also stack to uncontrollable heights should you take your eye off what you're doing. Coming back for Iceborne, I had forgotten all about the farming mechanics, the tail rider safaris, the trading ship, and how best to exploit them all. It certainly is front-loaded with a lot of info. However, the raw gameplay loop and the sheer charm of this game ellipses all minor irritations of system management and user interface issues. No other game does impact like this game does. Be it two monsters engaging in a turf war, or slamming your greatsword into a massive reptile skull, you feel the epic nature of your actions with a tactility that few other games manage. The monsters themselves are, for the most part, brilliantly designed and varied in their attack patterns. Though I do feel that some AoE attacks from the likes of Kirin and Valkana can seem out of place and sometimes cheap in their lethality, although this could just be down to the camera not working with you in certain portions of certain maps. However, the cuteness of my Palico forgives a multitude of gaming sins, despite the fact that he has an annoying habit of delivering a Vigor Wasp to me after I've downed a potion. Truly, this is one of my all-time favourite games, despite my criticism. Having taken a hiatus, I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to get back into the groove, or even if I would enjoy it that as much. What reaffirmed my love, however, was coming across a side quest in which a very well-known character turned up to conduct their own hunt, and I knew right then that, one, I wanted this to happen in every video game ever, and two, there's no way I'm not going to put another 300 hours in. Wonderful. Thanks very much for that, Steve. So on day of recording, we put out a call for three-word reviews at Kana Rince on Twitter. Um, yeah, Leah, can you take it away? Sure. Uh, Coup de Gravy says, Bloated Fiddly Adventure. Lindy Bailey says, Dance Poogie Wonderland. Mule Center 78 says, Need more tales. 
Uh, this one might need a bit of an explanation, but One Credit Classic says Glutton Wrecking Crew. So this is in reference to, um, well, Ben Ben's referencing a, a heavy bogan that he and his, his friends use called the Taroth Assault Glutton, which is essentially like bringing a nuke to a knife fight. Um, <laughs> he and his friends had four of them together, and I'm sure they made quick work of whatever it is that we're dealing with. Uh, Roarcord says 800 hours. Uh, Gordon R.D. says, Fuzzy Cat Friends. James McCall says, We Hunt Together. Dusk versus Tweak says, Here for Cats. Simply Wonderful says, There's a plot? <laughs> and Shawnee Voice says, Hammer those monsters. Good stuff. So um, I guess typically at this point, we try and sort of arrange an order that represents sort of worst or kind of least favorably views to, to most and, and i don't think we can probably even approximate that in this particular show so we'll just go in in no particular order leah can you just give me a summary please sure um yeah i b- before i do my summary i would just like to point out that we did not mention poogies um which <laughs> i i assume are a returning thing um because yep. i i thought that i remembered them uh vaguely from from other <laughs> stuff but uh mine uh, poogies are just little pig pets that uh hang out in the ga- not in the gathering hub in the uh in the central areas and uh mine is named pigby because he wears a little bee costume and he's adorable <laughs> and i love him and i would die for him uh so monster <laughs> hunter world um i i mean we we've we've basically covered everything that i could say about this i i really enjoyed this game it has been a very welcome way to um to socialize with people that i wouldn't normally get to talk to uh on a regular basis certainly and um i enjoy the mechanics uh, a great deal i i have a lot of fun going through the hunts i find them very accessible especially in comparison to some of the games that i sort of bounced off or just wasn't interested in before uh and i i'm really glad that i i mean i don't i don't have as many hours in it as some people but i have uh probably closing on 300 at this point and that's a lot that's that's several personas worth of of, of hours in a game <laughs> so um i i guess you could say that i was very into it uh and uh yeah anything that i can uh swing a great big hammer around and uh have uh fashion shows uh is is just wonderful so uh had a great time with it love it um and i am looking forward to playing more possibly when rice comes out we'll we'll see how that goes beautiful thanks very much Leah. josh yeah so we've covered a lot of the kind of um, aesthetic gameplay reasons why I adore this game. So I kind of want to focus more on the social side um, for my summary um, because this has been, as Leah said, like a fantastic opportunity to keep in contact with friends. Um, I ended up having like several different groups of people that I ended up playing with. Of course, there's the Kane and Rents crew, which mainly consisted of Rich, Jay, and and Leah um, that I would play with. I also had work friends that I would play with a lot as well, Um, and then also old uni friends that um, I would play with. Um, And having this one game that kind of served as a social hub for kind of all my different, like, different world, all my different social spheres was amazing. And I also loved the kind of in-jokes that kind of developed. Um, uh, Toby Kodachi was a monster that, for whatever reason, 
um, I ended up fighting a lot with uh, my work friends. And we started referring to Toby, uh, Toby Kadachi first as just Toby. And then we started referring to him as Toby Maguire. Uh, and then started making jokes about Spider Man 3. And, and uh, when Toby Kadachi was starting to, you know, drool and starting to drag its heels, we, we would make jokes about, wow, your career has really uh, gone downhill since Spider-Man 3, hasn't it, Maguire? And all of that kind of stuff. <laughs> and I just, I, my abiding memory of this game is going to be stuff like that. Just like the the in-jokes and the hilarious moments. Like, for example, when Rich and, and Jay and, and myself were fighting against Teostra, we were like 40 minutes into the fight we had all, had almost taken it down, and then Teostra does a supernova attack in the worst possible arena, where it's so tight it's impossible to avoid, and wipes the entire party, ending the game then and there. And the crestfallen uh, gasps of exasperation um, as we went into the game over screen, as much as that was frustrating in the moment, is hilarious in retrospect. Um, I love this game, and I love it for um, its gameplay, its aesthetics, but I love it for stuff like that even more. Beautiful. Thanks very much, Josh. Um, I'll go next. Uh it feels quite cruel and incredibly difficult to try and condense thousands of hours of, of gameplay and what is uh, seemingly an incredibly important relationship with a, a video game franchise into probably about a minute and a half's worth of speech. And I think that both Leah and Josh have done the, the heavy lifting in this part doing the descriptions. What I would say is that I I will always recommend Monster Hunter, even some of the earlier Monster Hunter games, because I think that they are robust i find them to be enjoyable and predictable but in the good way because it never feels unfair it always feels something that is um you know just dependable it's been a really important part of my life for the past 13 years i want to say and, and an enduring gameplay and i'm still struggling with the concept of picking up rise as we move forward in the future because I, i'm not sure that it's a healthy relationship that i've got however I do think that as a game, it's it's just wonderful and expressive and it's become an extension of my personality and I find that teaming up with other players and, and spending time with them, especially players who share that enthusiasm, is just a, a marvellous uh, experience. It seems to trigger all of the same loops and kind of serotonin kicks that an MMO would but with a very kind of healthy, finite finish to it. And you know when you're done with it and, and you're not feeling rinsed and, and manipulated in that regards. Monster Hunter World is the finest expression of the Monster Hunter formula and a wonderful game and, and a well-deserved uh, masterpiece. So let's conclude with uh, our guest, Sean. How am I supposed to top that? Oh, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> uh, yeah. He set you up. <laughs> yeah, um... I mean, yeah, so it, it's a, a strange experience to, you know, to be into a franchise for so long that it's famously thorny and people keep bouncing off it repeatedly. Um, and then for the game to finally arrive, that gets everyone on board and you kind of, and you and you stop having to be one of those sort of champions for it, right? And you, you know, using, you know, having used my sort of 
limited platform to shout about the series all these years than just be like, oh, well, there you go, 16 million people get it now. Cool. <laughs> um, and yeah, like, you know, so yeah, did we say this was the 16th uh, attempt at a Monster Hunter game, technically, even though it's like the fifth mainline one? Yeah. Um, so, you know, that that's 15 good games that just couldn't quite figure out how to get more people in right and and this is the one that finally did it it's a hell of an achievement um as i said you know i'm i'm not entirely on board with all of the changes but the the thing like to have changed so much and kept the essence of it um in a way that old and new players can still totally appreciate um is it's magic it, like it's <laughs> i don't really know how they've done it um and like and and taking world in isolation like like yeah, it's it's a game that is a series of boss fights, right? And and you know, you want to compare it to like any other game that is known for having iconic bosses. To pick a random example, Dark Souls, right? Dark Souls has tons of amazing bosses, but there's a lot of them where it's like, well, if you want to cheese it, here's how you you know here's where you can stand, and you'll probably not get hit by anything. Or, and then you can just, and, and you know, you can like see the scaleless, right? You stand to like his right and just keep hitting one of his, his tendrils and then he, and that's it. And he doesn't really hit you and it's fine. There's none of that in Monster Hunter. And you fight every one of them potentially dozens of times. And they re- like they get more interesting over time. And yeah, they, you know, they get to the point where, um, like Rich was saying, you start, you know, you start sort of seeing, you know, perceiving the matrix and you sort of... <laughs> You have this sort of innate knowledge of like you know wherever the monster is, like right. Hit, I know their their attacks that they can do from where they are and where they're going to hit, and da, da, and you kind of you know you develop this this strange knowledge of how they operate. But it's it's fascinating getting to that point with every, with pretty much all of them, um, and then once you factor in the the weapons and all the other systems. Um, that are a part of it it's just there's just so much to it and there's so many things like bouncing off each other in the most interesting ways um it's just yeah it's a series i'll always be fascinated with and i'll always be grateful to world for being the one that like really broke through to the west and and got so many more people on board um like it's it's a huge turning point for a series that's been around for so long and and you know and to most of those millions of players might as well be the only monster hunter game um but that's fine and 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 i'm fascinated to see where the series goes next oh wonderfully put sean thanks very much so before we wrap up sean um you're probably not gonna like this do you want to share with us some of your your other endeavors and perhaps you've got something you want to play yeah can do uh so yeah every week uh i am one of the hosts of the computer game show you can find us at tcgs.co um it is just a you know sort of weekly roundtable uh gaming podcast um, don't listen to last week's episode because I uh, unreasonably was uh, somewhat ageist um, in a way that has offended several of the Canaan Ritz uh, stalwarts. So, <laughs> so I do apologise for that, uh, Leon, if you're listening, and Chris. Um, and oh, Jay as well, I suppose. God, I can't... That's not uh, yeah. I'll, I'll just keep digging, shall I? Um, but yeah, it's a good show. You should listen to it. 
Thanks, Sean. <laughs> so, um, yeah, like while we're on the, the subject, if you have enjoyed both the intro and the outro music, then I invite you to check out our sister podcast, Sound of Player 250, where Josh and myself take you through a history of music from the full Monster soundtrack and uh, a detailed description of, of uh, what we enjoy so much about the monsters. It remains for me, Rich, to thank Leah, Josh, Sean, and our editor, Jay, as well as all of our correspondents and you, the listener. Next time in issue 453, it'll be time to kick ass and chew bubblegum. And we're all out of gum. It's Duke Nukem 3D. 